Well, good morning to you. I had somebody a little while ago come up to me and say, you know, there's 362 days until Christmas. So for those of you who are counting, you're ready for next year, right? Uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And, and I want to start out this morning by asking you a question. I want you to think back to when you were a child. And when you were a child, what is it that you wanted, what was it that you wanted to do when you grew up? What was the career choice? I'm sure as a child, you probably had much bigger plans than working in a cramped cubicle or, or working on the late shift and seemingly an endless job. Um, your childhood dreams probably didn't consist of, I can't wait to get to pay the mortgage, to change diapers, to pay tar- parking tickets, and even washing dishes. Maybe you dreamed of flying a fighter jet. Maybe you dreamed of going to a far-off distant land and being a missionary. Maybe you dreamed of finding the cure of cancer, or maybe even you dreamed of becoming the president of the United States one day. As children, we had high hopes, hopes of living a life that today seems so extraordinary compared to what you do or what you've done. What happened? What changed? What happened for most of us was reality happened. Um, Instead of notoriety, normalcy found us. Not to burst your bubble this morning, but if I were to describe you and I were to describe myself, I would most likely describe us as average Joes and average Janes. See, for me, that's not something that's discouraging. Actually, it's something that's very encouraging. Because our God has a fondness for average Joes and average Janes. Think about it. Before some of the the Bible heroes ever accomplished extraordinary deeds, normal guys like Gideon and David and Peter and Paul, they went about farming and sheep herding, fishing and tent making. Even Jesus banged nails and ran a saw before he became the king of kings. See, the Bible is full of a bunch of ordinary Joes and average Janes that have done extraordinary things through our God. In fact, in the story of Jesus' birth that we've read and talked about a lot in this Christmas season, um, we see how God used an average Joseph and an average Mary to do something extraordinary in and through them. And I don't know about you, but I know that this Christmas season, as I opened up God's Word and I looked at Matthew's record of Jesus' life, I skipped through the first little part, and that's the genealogy. I don't know about you, but when I look at the genealogy of Jesus, those names are hard to pronounce. (coughs) Those names don't have the same significance as (coughs) Jesus' life. Excuse me. So I just skipped right over them. But every single detail (coughs) that we see in Scripture is there for a reason. In fact, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, we see name after name after name of ordinary people that God did extraordinary things through. And we can see in the genealogy of Jesus the fulfillment of so many Old Testament prophecies. And as we look and see how God uses ordinary people like you and me, we see how he used them to pave hope for generations to come. 
Today, I want to look at one story in the midst of all of those names in the genealogy of Jesus. And the reason that this story gives me hope for generations is because as we look at it, as we dissect it, we see that by one individual's faithfulness, he changed the lives of those around him and the lives of generations to come. That individual's name is Boaz, and we read about him in the book of Ruth. And so if you have your Bibles today with you, if you could open them up to the book of Ruth. We find it in the Old Testament just past the book of Judges. I made it easy for if you have one of our Bibles in front of you. It's on page 143. There's only two pages. It's really easy to flip right past it. So um, as I said, Ruth is right after the book of Judges. And the book of Judges covers approximately 300 years of Israel's history. And in those 300 years, we learn about how God's people would kind of veer off the path and do things in their own ways and in their own abilities. And they would get themselves caught up in worshiping of idols. And over time, they would finally get oppressed by God's enemies. And they would cry out to God and they say, God, please help us. And God would send a judge along. And for a period of time in Judges, they would stick to God's plan. And then they would start this downward spiral once again um, where they got themselves caught up in idolatry again and their sin and degradation would get worse and worse. And it's in the very last verse of Judges chapter 21 that we get a clear picture of what it was like both in the time of Judges and in the time of Ruth. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. (coughs) That was the way that it was then. And to be honest with you, it's kind of the way that it is now in Stockton in 2014. And so with that background in mind, let's look at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. So they lived in a town that we hear a lot about, which is Bethlehem. And Bethlehem at this time was nothing more than a small village. However, it was in the middle of a very fertile agricultural area. In fact, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread, as that area would yield legendary harvests. (coughs) Yet at this time, there was an extreme famine in the land, and the house of bread was running out of bread. The famine was affecting everyone, and the people that lived there were hopeless. (coughs) Every family man was concerned for his family, but as far as we see it in Scripture, there was only one man, and his name was Elimelech, who bolted for the country of Moab. Elimelech made a bad decision based on the famine and the current economy where he was living in Bethlehem. His name means something interesting. It means, God is my king. But there's no indication in his decision-making that he ever consulted the king of kings before he implemented his plan. See, by trying to escape the disastrous famine, he created an even bigger disaster for his family. Let me ask you a question today. Have you ever made a decision in your life that has been disastrous for your family? See, in a nutshell... What Elimelech decided to do when the famine hit is he refused to consider what God might be doing through the adversity that they were facing. See, when we make decisions on our own, 
we have that same kind of thought. The thought of, well, I know God wants this for me, but I think this is better. And we slowly, ever so slowly, take step after step, and it's that slow fade away from God's best. And we try to stay over in that area as long as possible. And the only reason that we end up back in God's place is because our plans utterly fail. And we get to a place where there's nothing else for us to do but to cry out and say, God, please help me. Now, we don't end up over there because we lack faith. No, I believe we end up all the way over there because we have pride. See, on the outside, Elimelech going to Moab doesn't seem like a real big deal. I mean, there was a famine in the land, and if there's a famine in the land, why isn't it that he can't just take his family and find somewhere better for them? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And it's not like Elimelech was just picking up and moving like we would to find a new job, or even like Pastor JC is. No, by Elimelech picking up his family and going out to Moab, he was going from God's promised land, from God's people, and he was going to God's enemies. He was in direct disobedience and rebellion, and he was making this move in complete, completely against God's will. So let me ask you, how often are you like Elimelech? We know the plan that God has set out for us, but we like to do things our way instead. Have you ever gotten where you're one step ahead of the will of God? I know sometimes I'll get a couple steps ahead of the will of God. And I'll look around and say, oh my goodness, how did I get there? And it's interesting when I've gotten to that place, and maybe you can relate to this, and I have a chance to be able to look back on my decision making, I can realize how stupid I really was. Um, have you ever had the chance to chart the course to, that proved to be a complete and total failure? I read a story about a na- man named Ron Wayne. Ron was 76 years old and, and, like many people on a fixed income, was trying to stretch his income in any way that he could. And the way that he did it would go to the local uh, casino and play video poker to be able to stretch whatever he had. I guess creative ways, right? Here's the thing about Ron Wayne. He, of all people, shouldn't be one that would be stressing about money. Because he was there on April 1st, 1976, when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and Ron Wayne signed the papers to start Apple Computer. And at that time, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs each got 45% of the company each, and 10% of it was given to this man, Ron Wayne. But 11 days later, Ron Wayne decided that he would go and take the sure bet, and he sold his stock, 10% of Apple Computer, for $800. On an impulse, he decided to abandon this infant corporation. I mean, think about it personal computers, iPhones, all what they ended up being anyways. So Ron Wayne, he took $800 of sure money. Instead of if he would have held on to the stock, it would be worth $22 billion with a B dollars today. How often are we like him or how often are we like Elimelech where we make a decision today that will make our life easier, but it will negatively affect tomorrow? See, that's exactly what Elimelech did. He made the decision to move his family to Moab, to outrun the famine, and to try to outrun God for what he thought would be a very short time. 
If you pick up the scripture again in verse 3, it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Your first fill on your outline this morning as I look at the legacy of Elimelech is the first characteristic is one of abandonment. His short journey to Moab turned, about to, turned out to be his last journey as he passed away when he was there. The family stayed there for 10 more years and eventually both his sons died. So now we have three women who have been left abandoned as widows. Now, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are there. And understand this, that widows in the ancient world were considered outcasts. They had no social status, no economic means to survive. And in particular for Naomi at this time, this would have been extremely harsh for her because she was an Israelite living in a foreign country. There was no social security system, and there was no man there to be able to provide or to protect her. At this point, those women had to have been hopeless. They weren't thinking of generations to come. They were thinking of their next meal to come. They had to have felt so lost. Do you feel like that today? I mean, do the circumstances that you find yourself in the midst of, even in the midst of a Christmas season, do you feel hopeless? So Naomi hears that the Lord had come back to her people back home. And there was food there, so she decides to go back to her people. And Naomi and her daughter-in-laws, they start to head off on a journey. And at some point between Moab and Bethlehem, Naomi stops. And she starts to implore her daughter-in-laws to go back to their people, to go back to where they belong, for Naomi knows that she could not supply for them a husband. And it's interesting that in this conversation we see another legacy of Elimelech, and that is one of bitterness. See, as she tries to get the girls to go back, she tells them that she cannot provide for them. And listen to some of what she says, starting in verse 13. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of God has gone against me. Skip down to verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Listen to some of those words that she used there. Afflicted, bitter, against me, empty, brought calamity upon me. See, those are the words of a defeated person. The legacy of Elimelech is that of bitterness and of abandonment. Let me ask you a question. Are you leaving a legacy of bitterness as a result of the choices that maybe you've made? Or the choices of other people around you? Are you walking wounded in such a way that when you get around your family, they hear and feel this giant sucking sound as you have become a giant joy sucker? You laugh, but some of you in here are exactly that. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Friend, are you leaving a legacy of bitterness? Bitterness. 
See, it's so easy for us to be like Elimelech, where we make decisions that are short-sighted, where we don't think about the ramifications of our own lack of faith or our own selfishness, where our actions or our inaction leave us and everyone else around us so bitter. How can we make Christ and the power of the gospel feel worthless to those closest to us because we walk in our own strength and in our own ways rather than in the strength that was given to us as a result of the victory on Calvary's cross? See, Elimelech's legacy was one of abandonment and bitterness. In fact, not one that affected generations to come. And it's really not one worth recording much more significant information about in Scripture. And as we continue through the book of Ruth, we see how faithfulness will affect generations to come. In that same conversation that Naomi had with her daughter-in-laws, one of them heeds her advice and says, gives her a kiss and says, so long, I'm going to go back home. But the other one, Ruth, no, she says something completely different. In fact, look at what she says in verse 16. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Ruth decides that she will accompany Naomi back to her land. Ruth, in this very moment, is choosing to be faithful to a woman that she doesn't have to be faithful to anymore. She was choosing to become a foreigner in a brand new land. She was choosing to go to a land that wasn't necessarily going to welcome her in with open arms. No, they were going to reject her based on her lineage. Ruth gives us an example of a brand new legacy, a legacy of faithfulness. See the two, So the two women together, they continued on to Bethlehem. And Scripture says that they arrived there during the barley harvest season. And this homecoming for Naomi had to have been one of quite a change in perspective. When she left Bethlehem, there was a famine. When she returned, they had plenty. She was in a land where she was a foreigner, and now she's in a land where she belongs. She was in a land where they had nothing, and now she's in a land where she knows that there will be a provision for them. Maybe you're like Naomi today. Maybe you've been away from God for a long time whether it's based on your circumstances or maybe somebody hurt you really bad. And in this Christmas season, God got a hold of your heart and God stirred within you that you needed to be back around God's people. And maybe you're sitting here today for the first time in a long time and as God is massaging your heart, as God is just stirring within you for the first time for a while, you can say, I'm home. That's what Naomi felt as well. Because she was back with her people, back in the land that she knew, back where she knew she would be provided for. In fact, landowners at this time knew about the law that we read about in Leviticus 19 that says that when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the alien. Undoubtedly, this provision had to have been something that was discussed between Naomi and Ruth. Most likely hungry, Ruth goes to her mother-in-law and she says, Naomi, I want to go out in the fields and glean so that we have something to eat, something to be able to provide for us. And after Naomi gives her her blessing, Ruth ends ends up, goes out into the field and ends in the field of a man 
named Boaz. And that's where we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The NIV says that Boaz was a man of great standing. The King James Version describes Boaz as a man of great wealth. The Hebrew word here for the word worthy is hayel, which literally means of worth or of excellence. The same phrase that we see in the Hebrew is also in Judges chapter 11 and is translated as a mighty man of valor, which indicates character, wealth, position, and strength. So Boaz probably had a few bucks because he was a sensible and hardworking man. But the emphasis here isn't on money. It's on character and strength and excellence. In other words, Boaz's influence in this area and in the community was because of his character, not because of his wallet. And as I think about our lives today in 2014 and in the lives of the generations that will follow every single one of us should Jesus not come back, we should be desiring to be known as men and women of valor. Not that our family and friends would respect us because of how much money we might leave, but rather that they would respect us because of the excellence and the strength of our character, because the love and the joy of Jesus Christ just shines in and through every single one of us. And as we look at the story of Ruth, her character shines through in her actions with Naomi and as she gleans in Boaz's fields. Boaz took notice of her just as the harvesters took notice. And so Boaz goes to Ruth and he tells her, he says, Do not glean in any other field but my field. Work alongside my servant girls, and I've told my harvesters not to bug you at all. And that's where we pick up in verse 10, where we see Ruth's reaction. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so Ruth, that day, continues to glean in the fields. And at the end of the day, she has collected an epith, which is about three-fifths of a, a, a bushel of grain. And I can imagine as I put myself in the scripture there that as she came back and met up with Naomi, she was so excited and she shared with Naomi, look at what God provided for us. Look at what I was able to glean today as she shared that grain, that food with her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law, being an inquisitive woman, asks her, um, where did you end up? In whose field did you end up today? And Ruth responds by saying, I was in Boaz's field. At verse 20, Naomi responds by saying, that man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. The NIV version of that says that he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And so let me give a little bit of background here. God has assigned each family and each tribe a section of the promised land at this point. Now, this land was very important to God and to the Israelites. 
So to make sure that the land stayed within the family, the kinsman redeemer law was initiated. The way the law worked was if a man died and left land and a widow that bore no sons, the nearest kinsman, the nearest relative, would be given the opportunity to buy the land and marry the widow and bear sons that would carry on the family name. If he wouldn't, then the next closest kin or the next closest relative would be given the opportunity to buy the land. Now, there's a catch to this whole rule here. The kinsman redeemer couldn't make the decision to redeem the widow. No, he had to be asked by the widow to redeem her husband's land. So scripture says that Ruth spent the next two harvest seasons gleaning in Boaz's fields. And I'm sure the fact that Boaz was a redeemer came into the conversation between Naomi and Ruth. And so as we move into chapter 3, Naomi pushes Ruth to seek a kinsman redeemer. Scripture records, and I picture Naomi kind of sitting down with Ruth, and I picture this sweet mother-in-law with a sweet voice looking at Ruth and saying, Dear, I want you to be taken care of. I want you to have a husband. And in a way that only a mother-in-law can do, she gets that little reminder there of saying, Oh, and remember, Boaz is our Redeemer. And I can picture the conversation moving on from just this factual to uh, Naomi telling Ruth, Hey, I want you to go to the threshing floor tonight, and I want you to go and uncover Boaz's feet. But before you do that, get yourself all dolled up. And I picture them getting all excited, picking out the cutest of outfits, getting the right perfume, doing all of that stuff, and they're excited. Now, I probably had you there at the go and find a husband and get all dolled up, but threshing floor and uncovering feet? What are you talking about? Now, often when we look at Scripture, we hear about the threshing floor as being a place of work. And it certainly was a place of work, but when they would go there at night, it was a time of celebration. And so what they would do is, at the end of the harvest, they would all gather at the threshing floor, and they would praise God with singing of hymns and celebrate the great harvest, the bountiful gifts that God had given them. So that's what Naomi was expecting Boaz to be doing. They would eat, they would drink, they would be happy there. So Naomi, with that insight, knew that the best time for Ruth to go present herself to Boaz was to be right there when he is at his high, woohoo, yay, we had a great harvest. Now the other aspect of it is, is the one that kind of, what are you talking about, of laying on his feet and uncovering that type of thing. So there's nothing there that's coming across that is um, like unworthy or suggestive. What was happening there for Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet and to lay on them was a request for marriage. Remember in that kinsman redeemer law, in order for them to be redeemed, the widow had to ask the redeemer. In essence, Ruth had to propose to Boaz. And that's exactly what Naomi had instructed Ruth to do in verse 4. And so let's get back in the scene here. Pitcher on the threshing floor, grain. Boaz is asleep. Ruth sneaks in quietly. She lays down at Boaz's feet. And scripture says at some point during the night, Boaz wakes up. And he notices that there's a woman at his feet. And as I picture it, I picture this moonlit evening. And I picture this glimmer in Ruth's eyes as Boaz says, who is there? And she whispers with this sweet, sweet voice. It's me. It's Ruth. And as I picture the scene going on, I picture Boaz going from what's going on to this smile 
this gentle smile coming upon his face, for he had watched and he had witnessed Ruth now for a couple harvest seasons. And I picture Ruth looking Boaz eye to eye, and with the most sincerity in her voice, she asks him to spread the corner of his garment over her. And what she did in that moment was like a man getting down on one knee with a ring and asking his bride, future bride, to marry him. And it's in that moment. It's in that moment that Boaz had a choice. A choice that would provide hope for Ruth and hope for generations to come. See, Boaz didn't have to redeem Ruth. He chose to redeem Ruth. And it's in that decision that we see a whole new legacy, a legacy of redemption. And as we look at the scripture, Boaz knew that there also was a man that was more qualified to be the redeemer than he was. So Boaz tells Ruth to stay until morning. Then he offers her a gift to go and to give to Naomi for that great advice she just gave and sends her off. And Ruth, she gets home and she tells Naomi about everything that happened. And as I picture this, I picture her very excited. And like, did you know what happened? He looked at me and he said, yes, I'll redeem you. And Naomi gives a piece of advice that nobody wants to hear. She says, wait. Why is waiting so hard? Let me ask you a question today. What is God asking you to wait on right now? Has there been a time where you failed to wait upon the Lord and push through? How did it work out for you? So let me ask you again. What is God calling you to wait on today? Well, that's what Ruth did. She waited. But yet Boaz was a man of action. And as we see in chapter 4, Boaz goes to the city gate and he sits down to conduct business. The gate of the city was much like a courthouse today where transactions took place and where cases were heard. This was also a place where if you wanted to meet up with somebody, you would most likely see them as they came and went from the city. So he sat at the town gate and he waited for that kinsman redeemer that he had mentioned. When the man arrived, Boaz grabbed him. He had him sit down. He grabbed ten of the elders of the community, and he told the man that Naomi was selling the piece of land that belonged to their brother, Elimelech. He offered him the opportunity to purchase the land as he was the first in line. And the man responded by saying, Great, I'll take it. Not really the end of the love story that we're expecting, right? Probably not the response that even Boaz wanted at that time. So Boaz continues, and we read about it in verse 5 of chapter 4. The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. At which point Ruth jumps out of the bush where she had been hiding. Tears are going. Everybody's celebrating. Confetti's in the air. And this those romantic music in the background as everybody claps and cheers for our love story has ended with a happy ending. That's not what happens in the scripture. 
In fact, Scripture says that the Redeemer looks at Boaz. He pulls his sandal off his foot. He hands it to him and says, you redeem it yourself. See, at this time, sandals were the ordinary footwear, but they were also symbolic of the the relationship between a widow and her protector, or in this case, her Redeemer. The giving of a sandal was like a signed contract back then, especially in cases where land was involved. So by offering his sandal, it sealed the deal, and Ruth had been redeemed. And I love what the elders of the land say to them at this point in verse 12. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy and be renowned in Bethlehem. And you know what? She was. Ruth became famous, as we see in verses 21 through 22. Boaz and Ruth had a son whose name was Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who was the father of King David. And Jesus comes from the line of David and the line of Ruth and in the line of Boaz. Boaz, as Ruth's kinsman redeemer, foreshadowed how Jesus would come to redeem all of mankind. So this week, as we celebrate Christmas, we must remember that God was preparing the way through ordinary people years before Jesus ever came into the world in the form of an innocent baby. See, Boaz and Ruth also left a legacy of significance. See, as a result of Boaz and Ruth's faithfulness, their lives impacted generation after generation after generation after generation, and they were included in the genealogy of Jesus. As I conclude today, let me ask you a question. What kind of legacy are you leaving for future generations? And I'm not talking about a financial legacy here. Let me ask it in a different way. What kind of hope are you leaving for the generations to come? See, this isn't a question that is only answered in the later chapters of life. No, this is a question that every single one of us should be wrestling with on a daily basis. Why? Because your decisions today affect generations tomorrow. Let me say that again. Your decisions today affect generations tomorrow. The way that we live our lives in front of our children, in front of our grandchildren, is modeling what they are going to do tomorrow. Remember, it's not what's taught, it's what's caught. The generations that are following us see far more than they ever hear. So let me ask you this. Is your legacy one of abandonment and bitterness? Or is it one of faithfulness, redemption, and significance? Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Friend, If we are going to leave a legacy of hope for generations to come, we must first live that hope today. And as we live out the hope within Christ, we must raise up generations to come that will live out that same hope. So can I challenge you today to pray for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and the next and the next and the next next until Jesus comes back? that they will know by your faithfulness the hope that was born 
in Bethlehem. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you that generations before each one of us here today commended your works to another and declared your mighty acts. And as a result, Lord Father, we we get to know you. We get to have a personal relationship with you. And Father, today as we're sitting here, I know that, God, there are some people that if they were honest with you, they would know that maybe their legacy isn't as great as they would like it or you would like it. That, Father, their legacy could be described as one of abandonment and even of bitterness. But, Father, I thank you that you are not done writing that story. That the legacy is only beginning, but it's not finished. And so, Father, for those today that are dealing with those past decisions that are affecting even today, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that, Father, you will give them wisdom, that you will lead them through your Holy Spirit on how to make amends for those past decisions or those past hurts. And even in this moment, Father, I'm struck with dads that are here today who have abandoned their children for a new life or or a new marriage. And Father, even right now, as, as you are massaging their hearts, Father, I thank you that those men can stand up today as men of valor, as men of integrity, and go back and rebuild those relationships with their children. Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. I thank you for the redemptive power of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of all of our past hurts. And so, Father, I I pray, whether it's a dad, whether it's a mom, whether it's anybody here that's dealing with those issues of abandonment, that, Father, you can rewrite that legacy, that you can rewrite that legacy with faithfulness, with redemption, with significance. And, Father, we know that that is only going to be written through the power of the gospel. And so, Father, today, we want to cling on to the hope of Christmas. We want to cling on to the hope of Jesus Christ because we know that we can't do it in our own strength. But, God, we know that through your strength, through your power, through your hand, God, you can rewrite our legacy. And, Father, as we wrestle, as we're even made uneasy about what our legacy might look like, We know that it's not our legacy, but it's your legacy that is being written. And so, Father, in our lives, individually, we want to reflect the hope of Christmas. And so, Father, may you continue to refine us. May you continue to redeem us. May you continue to draw us closer to you so that, Father, we can walk in your ways. Father, we want to leave a hope for generations to come for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray.